The White of a Cow's Eye, written by Peter Bird in 2002, published by Nighthag Productions. ISBN number 0958901872, a Nighthag original, read by the author in 2020. Chapter 1 The artificial cloud moved through the stratosphere and passed into the deep, endless void of particle space, like threads of silk spun from the spider of creation. Doug Rabbit was aware of the cloud and made allowances to the programmed flight path that his star freighter was travelling on. The deviation from the safety zone was a mere 0.2 of a magnometer, but it may have been enough to give the ship's position away to the enemy. The Earthmen inside the vests were told to hold their breath, lest their breathing be enough for alien pulse mines that were hovering inside the nebulous cloud to detect. A few seconds later, the skyship was back on course and the men sighed, a relieved exultation. For now, the danger was over. Military status? Rabbit asked his first mate. Commander Roland Galvin complied and furnished the central vidscreen with their current situation. One fully armed armada of Dagonian warships was positioned less than two solar hours from their own craft and had not moved a molecule since lunar dawn three hours ago. Stable, Galvin said. Let's hope it stays that way, Rabbit said, dabbing at sweat that erupted across his face. So far their cruiser had not been detected. Maintain current course. Galvin acknowledged the captain and reprogrammed the flight path through the enemy's motion-detecting mine clouds towards the planet Saffron, where a hundred human hostages waited in silence for their top-secret arrival. At this point, Ray Bender paused to re-read a previous chapter, which, with precise detail, described the predicament of the humans, satisfied that he'd given the reader enough background information about the Dagonian Earth Pact of 2098. Ray continued with his story, which for several pages plotted the ship's flight path towards the planet until he got bored with it and decided to spice things up a bit. Captain Rabbit of the Star Freighter Galfox 7 reluctantly gave the order to surrender. It was far too late to turn back now. Enhanced motion detectors had announced to the enemy the humans' presence. Their position was totally futile against the might of the Dagonian battle fleet that surrounded them in vast numbers. Rabbit's vigilante-like decision to penetrate the volatile zone and attempt to rescue the human hostages on the planet Saffron had been a bad one and now he was giving the enemy the Earth's prized fleet cruiser and ten of the best skymen available. It probably meant instant execution at the hands of the enemy. Dagonians were prone to execute top brass as an example of their complete disregard for respect for high-ranking human officers. Rabbit relayed his intentions to resign to the computer, which would relay the message to Earth. 
but even at magnal light speed, the message would make little difference in their predicament here. He signed a final statement in the ship's log and waited for the Dagonian soldiers to dock and board his vest. The thick, heady scent of fear hung in the control chamber as the locking ports engaged, signifying the arrival of the aliens. The first mate placed a hand upon the captain's shoulder and said nothing. Their eyes met for a brief instant. The pulse from one man synchronised itself with each of the ten men in the room. They were as one. The vid screen announced that twenty-three soldiers had entered. Rabbit weighed that information up. How many enemy craft are out there? His first mate informed him that there were six battleships within firing range, but since receiving the surrender, five had backed off and only one remained with laser cannons open and ready for any retaliation. Rabbit's face twitched. A deviously human streak of defiance crossed his brow. He gave the first mate a nod. The first mate smiled nervously. You thinking what I'm thinking, Galvin? Rabbit asked. Galvin said, I am. You know, surrendering was never on my mind. The captain took his seven-shot Halswitzer from the scabbard and aimed it at the door. To his crewmen, he said, I suggest you arm yourselves, boys. We're going to fight our way out of this. For Christ's sake, the docking man shouted. They'll blast us into anti-neuronic particle matter. Arm yourself, Jefferson. Smith, get ready to unlock the intruder craft from the docking point. We're getting out of here. And the aliens, and taking the aliens with us, Captain? That's madness. You jeopardise the lives of the hostages of the planet. We have to surrender. Smith pleaded even as he enthusiastically programmed the D-lock procedure into the computer. Watts, keep an eye on that remaining battleship. If the cannon's open, I want you to be on the ball and steer this thing like your life depended on it, and I don't have to tell you that it does. When the aliens discover their pod has been unloaded, they're going to be awfully worried. And awfully upset, Jefferson said as he completed the D-lock procedure. Here goes. The sound of the air tubes releasing the Dagonian vests into space sent the crew into a frenzy. From the entranceway, dim shouts were heard as the aliens realised their plight. Jam all radio frequencies, the captain shouted. They're trying to communicate to the Armada. We need as much time as we can. Watts, get us out of here. Watts nodded and programmed the throttle injectors into motion. The ship gave a groan and lunged forward into clear space. A flush of light shot past the main vid screen and disappeared from sight. They're firing on us, Captain. Steer her well, lad. Rabbit released the safety catch on his seven shot and aimed it with a steady hand at the door. Gentlemen, prepare to welcome our hosts. The sliding vacuum operator door opened, revealing seven fully armed Dagonian soldiers panic-stricken, knowing that they had just been separated from their vests. Their steel pupilless orbs showed no emotion, but the sweat that ran back down their leathery faces betrayed any illusion of bravery they may have tried to put over. Rabbit's whiskers began to twitch. Rabbit's whiskers? Christ. Ray could not believe he had just written that. Rabbit's whiskers began to twitch. It was time for a break. He'd been in front of the computer for 15 minutes solid and it was high time for a couple of hard life-sustaining drugs. 
coffee and cigarettes. So he paused for a shot at both. As usual, this was a mistake, because an hour later, Ray was still trying to get that battle scene back in his head, where it had been fermenting for the last few days. He couldn't leave it there, even though he wasn't convinced the suspense had been carried through enough to sustain interest. He realised the story did not even sustain his own interest, but he had to keep going, even if his story proved to be another misfired shot in the dark. There were no excuses. Nothing on television to offer distraction, no family here and no pets that needed feeding, no budgie cage to clean. The dishes could wait. Dilemma. No excuses. Ray had a job to do, and it was a messy one. Reality slapped him hard in the face like a wet dishcloth. He had to redraft the last 15 minutes of his boringly ordinary science fiction story, and there was no getting away from it. Simple as that. Anyway, who cared about these characters, he thought to himself. Was there enough of a plot? Were the characters developed well enough in the early chapters? Just to make sure, Ray thumbed through a few early chapters and reread the part where Rabbit was enlisted to send reserve supplies to the hostages. No, there had to be more. Something was missing. He needed another cigarette, but there was none left and no money until the dole check cleared itself on Tuesday. One day away. No excuses. It wasn't even a nice kind of day to go off and, and dream a few hours away on the beach, which was less than ten minutes from his door of his single room flat. No excuses, no matter how Ray looked at it, he simply had to sweat it out and keep telling himself there was potential couple of hundred bucks for the story in the next edition of Science Fiction Monthly Magazine if ever the thing managed to get finished on time for the quarterly edition due out in two months. He began to ponder the reasons why he procrastinated for so long over his craft, and in order to achieve this state of wonderment, he picked up a copy of the last edition of the magazine and studied the cover with the semi-clad blonde-haired sex goddess who held the world in the palm of her hand and in the other held a weapon that was shaped like a piece of well-crafted male genitalia. After studying this picture a while, he came to the conclusion that it probably wasn't worth submitting a story to some pulp fish wrap throwaway publication like that anyway. What the hell did they know about quality? Any magazine that can't come up with something different to the standard nubile female warrior on the cover probably didn't know a classy groundbreaking short story if it fell over out of the envelope and landed on their lap. He threw it in the woven cane waste paper basket and pretended it wasn't worth the sweat. But five minutes later, Ray was rereading the magazine for about the fourth time that week. There was a story in it that had inspired him to continue with his own piece of fiction. The story was about a Martian who came to Earth and trained the inhabitants on how to survive a nuclear holocaust. The punchline came a few lines from the end, as the reader discovers the inhabitants were cockroaches who had adopted human characteristics. Humans had long since wiped themselves from the face of the desolate planet. Ray admired the story and was wishing he'd have thought of the idea himself. Instead of plodding along with his boring story, Attack of the, Attack of the Dagonians, he should be working on a full-length novel right now. He could see his name in print, Ray Bender, and beneath it in red text, over a suitably eye-catching picture, the word Roachworld. And then the sequel, as soon as the film writes. The philosophy was, 
I should be working on the ultimate novel, the one that changes people's points of view forever. Secretly, he doubted there was room at the top for one more writer to climb that weary ladder. He believed all the great novels had been written or were currently being written by literary geniuses whose intelligences and whose gift of creation was far beyond and above his own. Ray desired to write a groundbreaking novel, but his alter ego said, don't bother, it's too much to suffer for. Suffering for one's art had become out of date, old fashioned. It was passé. Too many people out there were already tenaciously attempting to impress the critics. Why then didn't he feel com comfortable to just sit down and write a satisfyingly decent B-grade pulp science fiction story and bugger the lot of critics? Who needs to eat anyway? It wasn't as if he had a family to feed or anything. He could starve for all they fucking cared. Starve and suffer in the name of art, and it frightened him to think that he probably would. To hell with it, get back to the novel and keep writing. At the entranceway, the chief Dagonian warlord Dole Thatcher stood twirling his butt at the humans, surprised by his sudden entrance. Ray paused again, angry with himself that he had paused for only two lines, but amused as to the way his mind turned from one thing to another so rapidly. No doubt the poor buggers were surprised, Ray surmised. Where the hell did the name Dole Thatcher come from? The problem with inventing names from the top of one's head was remembering exactly how they spelt from chapter to chapter. Dole? Well, that was easy enough. He'd been living on it for almost a year now. But Thatcher? Where was his mind? Somewhere in London? Had he been thinking of an old girlfriend he used to know who moved to London because she couldn't stand the clutter of his keyboard anymore? He knew she never liked his stories. But that was because she was a feminist, and Ray's stories always had weak, defenceless women in them needing to be rescued by big, strong men. He had no quarrel with that. If those romance publishers can pay their authors ten grand in the hand just to write simple formula stuff that was popular, then he damn well would too. He just had to find a pulp science fiction publisher who believed in his ability. Thatcher. Maybe he was a Londoner in his past life. Dole and Thatcher. Maybe he was thinking socialism. Problem solved. X marks the spot. But what did that have to do with science fiction? Flipping through an earlier chapter, Ray came across a Dagonian's chief's correct name, Dol Thagger, and wrote it in pen on the front page of the first chapter. And twirling his butt? He corrected it to twirling the butt of his rifle. No, that was making it too simple. Twirling his ectoplasmic Maxi-7. Much better. No, that was no good. The ship was called Galfox 7. It's too coincidental. So he changed the weapon to a Smith and Halloran ectoplasmic twin barreled Series 8. Dol Thagger stood at the entranceway, twirling his Smith and Halloran ectoplasmic twin barrel Series 8 with the fast view telefracting moon glow sights. Now another thought crossed Ray's mind. Would Dole Thagger twirl an ectoplasm, not a rifle, as mean and powerful as a Series 8 be too heavy to twirl? And by twirling it, did this not give the reader a sense that the rifle was nothing more than a lightweight pop gun, when in essence the name needed to convey to the reader that this weapon was designed to turn human beings a kilometre away into piles of oozy rhubarb mush? Could something like that be twirled? 
Ray realised that the entire section called for a reinvestigation. Ray found that he was looking for in Chapter 3. There, explained in magnificent detail, was the weapon that Dole Thager carried in his scabbard. So the news section was updated and Ray made a mental note that the next short story, or the next anything, was going to include a separate file on trivial bits of essential information so that he did not have to wade for hours through this stupid story any more than he had to to find ridiculous bits of information just so his readers would not be gypped into thinking they are reading some dud would-be science fiction writer who couldn't even get his own made-up facts right, even when they were. Then what the hell did Ray care for what the readers thought anyway? Who was writing this story and why was he writing this story? Was he really writing it for them? Some anonymous bunch of mincy, wart-faced, bespeckled readers who probably didn't exist? Or was he writing to stave off boredom? It had nothing to do with fame and fortune. It had nothing to do with the glory of seeing one's name in print. It had nothing to do with being a literary wanker or wearing tags that said, hey, I'm a writer. No, no, no. Hey, I'm a science fiction writer. No, no, no. Hey, I'm a successful science fiction writer. Ray paused and thought seriously about what he was bagging because it all sounded interesting, romantic and somewhat appealing. He agreed with himself that all the reasons he had just considered did matter, and so, armed with a revitalised sense of eternal worth, continued the story without further interruption until completed, and more or less satisfied with the result, donned his shoes and made his way down the street to post office to mail it off. That done, he visited the newspaper shop on the corner of the street and bought a local paper. He also bought the latest edition of Science Fiction Monthly. He found a nice shaded spot in the park where he could read in comfort and check out the positions vacant in the back of the paper. It had been something of a ritual ever since he left university armed with his arts degree, intent on finding the perfect job the first time, or spend his life on the dole waiting for that perfect job to surface. One year down the track and he was beginning to wilt under the pressure of not earning a weekly wage of substance. His lifestyle, fortunately, was a low-key affair and did not involve regular engagements with Flash Company, so he did not care whether the clothes that he wore were the latest in fashion, and he did not care if he did not have a late-model car to drive. In fact, Ray chose to travel by public transport. He maintained that it was easier to meet interesting people that way than by travelling on your own in your own car. Not that he ever met anyone. Ray was by nature a bit of a loner, preferring his own quiet company to that of the life of a jovial man. But this did not stop him from thinking about the opposite sex and female company. Each morning he spent a couple of hours downtown, window shopping for things he could never afford, but pleased to know that he did not desire these things with any passion. Things like high-powered computers, mobile phones that also doubled up as desktop word processing packages and weekly planners, stereo players that towered above their owners and televisions with massive black screens and stereo speakers. He loved it all, but was content enough to look and walk on. Someday all this would be his. If not, then the cockroaches who would inherit the earth will have loads of fun with the stuff, even if they never get to appreciate its function and its genius. On page 42 of his paper, Ray read an interview of a man he used to go to school with, who has now become the beneficiary of one of the largest tyre retreading companies in the country, Jason Steeles. A soft pang cut into Ray's psyche. Jason was the ratbag of the school. 
always trouble and never doing what the teacher wanted, and now his face shone on page 40, and behind it a huge turtle tyre factory, a glorious green expanse of painted concrete, a structure ideally situated on the highway and could be seen for a kilometre down the road in either direction. For as long as Ray could remember, the Turtle Tire Company had always been there, but maybe now that Jason Steeles was at the helm, it would soon collapse. The interview was nevertheless interesting enough, and in many ways it paralleled his experiences. Both men were locals, born in a small suburb on the outskirts of the city, populated by a couple of hundred thousand. Both were the same age, but upon leaving school things changed dramatically. Jason had attended the local technical college, learning the skills of an auto mechanic, whilst Ray left school a year too early and wandered about aimlessly for several years finding nothing but dreg labouring jobs before landing a place in university. This interview was a real profile on steels. It even listed Jason's hobbies, likes and dislikes. His hobbies included fishing and sailing and his favourite food was lasagna. Ray began to wonder about the relevance of this interview. Was it about Jason's successful takeover of the business, or was it a personal profile of a local lad come good? The article stated, As a young boy, Jason was often found at the local watering hole fishing for yabbies with his friend Ashley Stipe. Perhaps that was where I went wrong, Ray thought. As a boy, Ray was often found with his head in a book or a pen in his hand. He'd been writing short stories since he was 10 years old, an addiction from a childhood bombarded by black and white television and creature feature movies on Channel 7 in the late hours of evening, an imagination well and truly wetted by a glut of Godzilla movies and weird zombie films from Mexico dubbed in English. Why they never put those great B-grade movies back on anymore was beyond Ray's understanding. He knew he would still watch them if they were still on. Despite what people might say about them, he did not think they were detrimental to his learning. They may have even aided him in his creativity. But then, most people who knew Ray did not see him as being creative. Rather, they considered him just a lazy sod with an interest in working, with no interest in working hard for an honest living. And if success was measured in publication offers, their theories were justified. To Ray, the idea of a nine-hour job sweating in the hot sun for a few dollars was never a very attractive proposition and something he always strived hard to avoid. So he went to university and completed a creative writing course and convinced no one but himself that he was going to be a famous writer and told his peers to keep checking those book stands because Ray Bender was going to be there. I'm convinced of that, he thought to himself. He often considered himself as being a little too self-centred, just a little too confident. Maybe that came courtesy of his upbringing, being the only son of Bill and Gwen Bender, a very ordinary peas and potato and steak on the plate kind of family. Only because they aren't artistic like me, he thought, they don't know the hard struggle it's been trying to support yourself when you're an artist. It's said in column three that Jason Steeles was fond of painting as a child. Ray remembered him being caught spraying the subway walls with graffiti when he was 12 years old. He even remembered the message that Steeles sprayed. It was, get a rat up you. Toward the end of the interview, Ray discovered the real reason for the trivial profile and it made him even more envious of his schoolmate. 
Jason had been selected to appear in a special contest title, Man of Our Times, which was a kind of beauty quest that featured males instead of young women. Good-looking Jason was this week's entrance. For being such a sport, he picked up a free dinner for two at the Regency Noble Hotel and a complimentary chauffeur-driven limo to their destination afterwards, which was a premiere opening of a new Australian opera called Lay Little Chicken, which was being billed as the greatest show since Lay Girls. Ray wasn't one for the opera, but the thought of being one of the select elite few watching the opening performance of Lay Little Chicken with your wife and being driven there in a limo just because you were an attractive looking somehow summed up his entire philosophy on life, unfair and cruel. What if Jason Steeles had been a one-eyed leper without teeth, drooling ribbers of saliva down each cheek? Would they have picked him then? Probably, Ray thought. It was a 90s thing to do to encourage the handicapped. Correction, the intellectually disadvantaged. Life was so confusing sometimes. Page 42 was the beauty page just to rub it in. Not that Ray was ugly, but nobody got prizes for being boringly normal. Today's full-page spread on a beauty treatment included a breakthrough in hair removal for women. It featured a thing called an electrodrone, some new mechanical gadget that zapped hairs with microwaves, destroying them forever. Each hair had to be painstakingly clasped by the machine and zapped for 30 seconds. Ray thought about this for some time, but try as he may, he was hard-pressed to come up with a more tedious way of spending an entire evening. At least he thought some people had hair to dispense with. Ray Bender was 33 and ageing. His short brown hair was rapidly balding in the front and had been doing so since his early teenage years. His friends said this was due to him constantly hitting his forehead in frustration at every blank rejection slip he had received from publishing companies. They could be right about that too, he thought. And as far as beauty contests, well, Ray knew he could never forget about that. For starters, his stomach was soft and flabby and extended well over his belt, which was on its last rung and straining. He put this down to the years of easy living with his mother and father who fed and sheltered him from the real world for 26 of his years until he made the big break into university and into that real world. The real world? Somebody forgot to tell Ray that university was not the real world. Never mind, he thought. I got through it and survived without being brainwashed into believing that academics knew anything at all about the street value of what they were teaching. So I'm 33, he snorted, and where's my life, and my children, and my 1966 Ford Mustang project in the double garage? At 33, a man usually finds himself with an abundance of children about him. A man of 33 often sits back in his chair and contemplates everything he owns, from the near new car in his garage to the modest three-bedroom home in the south southern suburbs to the pile of golf sticks that sat in the corner of his bedroom waiting for Sunday. A man of 33 spends five days a week working for a fat cat in some corporate establishment attired neatly in iron white shirts and plain ties and tidy trousers and black leather shoes and lunches from 12 to 1 with the rest of the office workers. They have a favourite place in the city. Often it's the trendy alfresco corner coffee shop, but sometimes it's the pub, and they chat about life over a counter lunch and maybe a boutique beer or two, and then it's back to the office till five, ambling home as the sun sets on a horizon that can't be seen because all of the towering skyscrapers in the city and the bugs splat on the windows of dirty commuter buses. 
Other men, diplomats aged 30 and a tad, ease into the plush two-tone plastic environment of their Japanese sports cars, engage automatic and speed their way home, arriving around two hours later, greeted by a wife and two young children and maybe a dog or a cat. Probably a cat, although cats don't greet you, so maybe you have a dog. Some men of 30 and a bit could also lead different lives altogether sweating his ass off in the sun, staggering home from a hot day, dressed in sweaty stubbies and a navy singlet stained with bits of road grime or cement dust or other factory chemical upon it. Just thinking about it all made Ray nauseous. His face was none of these. The face that Ray wore was the face of someone who had never seen to be working, rarely seen on the street, but was in fact sweating it out in another painful way at home, behind the computer screen in the middle of the night, where most normal people were tucked away neatly in snug beds, dreaming happy thoughts. It was the life he chose, a life of near poverty, but one of simplicity and sanctity. That crazy, eccentric ambience. I should have quit the habit long ago. Twenty years of writing hasn't got me very far up the literary ladder, old son, he realised. Ray's friends used to say things to him like, When are you going to get a real job, Ray? And has, has anybody ever published any of those silly stories of yours? Now all friendships have been abandoned in favour of a seemingly mindless and fruitless cause, a cause no one really cared less about anyway. The pain, the indignity of it all, Ray thought, why wasn't I like Jason Steele's? And here I am, Ray thought, sitting on a park bench reading newspapers. But because the day was fine, Ray held no bitterness. On a cold day, his mood might have been worse. A woman strolled past, pushing a rusty chrome-plated pram with pink plastic attachments. There was a cigarette in her mouth which she withdrew as she passed him. Her eyes were concealed beneath refracting black lenses and her hair was long and black and just washed. She smelt of cheap soap and shampoo and cigarettes. Her clothes were neither new nor very clean, but that probably was due to the young thing that bawled from the depths of the rickety old pram. Ray had seen the woman before and never without the company of the pram or the baby inside it. Like most people in this town, she didn't bother speaking. It wasn't a small enough town for that, but Ray didn't mind. He would not have known what to say had a woman spoke to him, anyway. It had been such a long time since a female had had anything to do with him, and he now held on to the conviction that he was of no interest to them, and in ways that was true. Most women, Ray believed, were after one of three things from a man. Security, compatibility and love. Ray had no security, was incompatible with everyone, and the only person he loved in the world was his mother and her tame magpie that she named Maggie. There had been a girlfriend once, but she was somebody he'd rather forget. Her and her hippie friends, Carolina. He was initially attracted her to her by the sound of her name. It reminded him of Caramello Bears, which he loved passionately until the product changed its name to Caramello Koalas. Today's Caramello Koalas were not half as nice as the old Caramello Bears, even if they were made with the same ingredients and tasted the same. He met her through an introductory agency. 
Ray had been studying at uni at the time and a fellow male student put him into the services after finding his own happy bundle of joy through the channel. So Ray gave it a go. He paid his $60 joining fee and received a letter in the mail. That was his first introduction to Carolina. He often later wished it had been his last. From day one, their relationship had been a disaster. Ray needed love and company, and Carolina needed money and lots of it. Money for her drug addiction, he later discovered. In the beginning, Ray had glossed over her problems. He had some money, mostly because his low lifestyle enabled him to save money on Ostudy. But this soon ran out, and then things got to be really nasty. They lasted three months together. Ray had a sudden and traumatic initiation into the passions of the opposite sex, and he would be lying if he said it wasn't totally unsatisfying. He was not ready for her, not ready for the drug taking, and not ready for her community of friends who used to invade their house and eat his food and use his toilet without flushing it afterwards. And it was the worry of not knowing where and when she would come home, or whether she would come home, in back in one piece. Ray would take her back, dry her out for the week, only to see her vanish as soon as she got some more money off him. In the end, Ray never led her back into his life. It was the disgust he felt for her because she could, he could see what she was doing to herself. He could see how much she hated herself and hated others. And he could see how easily the drugs turned her into a violent creature with no decency. And he could believe on odd occasions how easily it would be for him to fall into that same rut and never crawl out again. Ray was also a vulnerable individual but at least an awareness of this vulnerability kept him away from the addictive stuff of life. The seedy side of life was something he was fortunate enough to have missed. So far, he'd only become addicted to caffeine and not even the expensive stuff. Eight cups of black no-frills freeze-dried coffee a day was all his body needed to kickstart himself into gear. No milk, no sugar. Carolina had now been gone for six months, her last parting gift was delivered by a hippie friend on his doorstep, a turd wrapped in an old draft of another failed story of his that she must have stolen called The Leeches That Sucked Blood and set a light on the step and a knock on the door to indicate its existence coupled with a letter pinned onto his door saying Dear Ray, this is goodbye. I'm pleased to say I'm glad I will never have to read another of your dopey science fiction stories ever again. Yours, Caramello. You always called her Caramello. At least she would hang on to that memory. So he thought wrongly. That must have been that. But less than two weeks ago, his answer phone had captured the unmistakable strains of her soft, sultry vocal cords, and he had phoned her back, and they had made passionate love over the phone. She promised him she would come back soon, and he had promised her there would be a place for her when she did, but she did not come back, and he had not heard a thing since that crazy evening. Ray sighed to himself as another faceless woman passed him by. He shuffled his paper and focused on the job at hand, the position's vacant page. It was something that he studied with vague intent. But today, he felt finally that he was ready for a real job. The hunger pains just weren't abating anymore. 
99.9 times out of 100, there was sweet bugger all for him to choose from, and lately it had become increasingly difficult to find jobs in both the local and the city papers. However, today, miracle of miracles, he found a position that instantly caught his attention. Position vacant. Person required to assist with cleaning duties in travelling sideshow. The position is temporary for six months. For more information, phone Mr. Ian Fingerman on... Ray ripped the ad from the paper and stuck it in his pocket. It may be interesting work, and it might give him enough money to lash out and buy that new computer that he'd been ogling for some time at a local computer shop, and it was temporary. This was one of the selling points with Ray. He hated the thought of being stuck in some dead-end job full-time and not having the guts to bail out when the time came for a change. In fact, the more he thought about the job, the more he wanted to phone up about it. He found nothing else on offer except for a local abattoir seeking labourers to work in the offal room. Apart from the pay listed as five sixty per week, Ray entertained no thought of that job. Disgusting, he thought. Awful. Intestines. Making sausages. Gross. He enjoyed sausages. He flipped through the latest science fiction monthly and was once more disappointed to find the same writers contributing the same kinds of stories to the magazine. This edition featured stories on zombie robots, mutant rabbits spreading a killer virus through the world, and a cyber detective story. Ray enjoyed the stories, but what he objected to was the way that they were written, that is, the formula that the pieces had to comply with to appear in the magazine. And yet, Ray had been unable to crack that formula. But maybe with his latest creation, Attack of the Dagonians, things would change. He'd show them how it was done. The first thing Ray did when he got back was check the answer phone. There may be that literary breakthrough he'd been hoping for, for some, from some enlightened editor, but as soon as the first caller for the day spoke, Ray knew there were problems in store for him. Problems he knew he could really do without. For a start, Caramello had rung. Her message was brief, but passionate. She said she needed his body desperately. She said she needed to touch him and kiss him until they both died with ecstasy. Ray wondered what kind of ecstasy she really meant. She left a return number for him to call. Sometime that evening he felt he probably would, and after he'd fed, him, he'd fed himself and showered and settled back for the night in front of the television to watch a thrilling movie premiere that never appeared to be as good as the preview suggested, he would phone her and they would chat for hours, getting on better than they ever did when they were together. Irony of life. The second message proved to be more interesting. It was Harold Luck, assistant sub-editor for Goblet Books. Harold said he had read Ray's recent contribution and needed to talk about it urgently. Ray picked up the telephone and dialed the office. After a few minutes of listening to an orchestrated version of Greensleeves, the receptionist said, Go ahead, please. Mr. Luck? Hello, Ray. Thank you for being so patient. I've read your contribution and, frankly... Ray noted the obligatory scoff. I must confess I'm a little undecided about it. I'm talking about that story of yours, the Harbour Horror. Yes, Ray said. Is there something about the story you don't like, or you want me to change? Mr Luck laughed a little. Well, to be honest, Ray, there were quite a few discrepancies I found in the story. I think there are several sections of the story that, in all honesty, need to be completely rewritten. I do realise you might be sensitive to criticism, but I do think a major rewrite is necessary. A bit about the giant monster reaching out and pulling the harbour bridge down is full of cliches. 
But Ray said, I don't think there are any local versions of that. What do you mean? Well, no monster has ever pulled the Sydney Harbour Bridge down. Mr Luck sighed again. It was so predictable. Ray could have written a book about it entitled Anatomy of Blank Rejection Slip. Do you know what I'm saying? I sort of, Ray said. I'd, you don't like my story. Mr Luck sighed. On the contrary, I like your story quite a lot. But monsters pulling bridges down with long tentaculated arms is so out of date. And really, Ray, couldn't you find a better word than tentaculated? I looked it up in the dictionary and I couldn't find it anywhere. Well, you see, my intention was to represent the past. It was a kind of celebration of the 50s science fiction scene. Well, to be quite frank, Ray, the whole thing came across as a bit of a piss-take of the whole genre. Oh, fuck, Mr. Luck. That wasn't my intention at all. Wasn't it? Look, Ray, I think you really need to think about your audience. You need to write for your readers, not just for yourself. But, Ray interjected, if you can't be true to your own heart, then why bother writing at all? Why don't I just give it all away and take up a job? And he paused as he thought about what he might do and remembered one of the jobs he saw in today's paper and added, making sausages. Why not indeed? Goodbye, Ray. Mr Luck hung up the phone and Ray stood for a while thinking about how worthless he was feeling right then. Why couldn't bloody old Luck suggest a mild modification, a resubmission and then offer of publication? Ray lit a cigarette and filled his, filled his mug with cheap black coffee. No sugar or milk. Shit. He decided to phone Ian Fingerman about the assistant cleaning position. After a few deep beeps, Ian Fingerman answered, Yes? I'm ringing about the job, the one on the paper. The assistant. Yes, what do you want to know about it? Well, what do you do, actually? What do you actually have to do? Fingerman said, A considerable amount of cleaning of amusement machines, such as the Ferris wheel, the octopus, and the Gravitron. The Gravitron, Ray asked, what's that? Fingerman said, how old are you, pal? 33, Ray said, is that a problem? He added, you'll find out, pay us $10.50 an hour. We're in the region for three months. There's a fair bit of travelling around, but if you're interested, come down to the community park on Saturday afternoon and see me. I'm in the pink and purple caravan. You'll see it when you get there, Saturday afternoon. And then he hung up. Ray sipped at his coffee confident that the job was his, but not so certain that his life skills prepared him for the Gravitron, whatever that was. So what? It was a few dollars and that would help pay for something. Besides, he had nothing planned for that day. It wouldn't hurt him to wander down to the show and see this man. At worst, he couldn't, it wouldn't get the job, but he would have some fun at the shooting galleries or driving the dodging cars. Sunday was a day usually spent at his parents' place, talking to his mother and playing with Maggie. He screwed up the ad and they threw it in the cane wastepaper basket, and while he was at it, cleared out the rest of his junk in his pocket. For some reason, he had also torn out the abattoir job from his from the paper, but it was the last place he would ever work, and he threw the ad in the bin with passionate force, as though the piece of paper was offensive to the touch. Later after dinner consisting of four frozen vegetables and a piece of frozen ham quiche, Ray took up the telephone and dialed Carolina's mother. Later, after dinner, consisting of frozen vegetables and a piece of frozen ham quiche, Ray took up the telephone and dialed Carolina's number. Ray, hi Caramello. 
Ray, about the other week, I understand, Ray said, all-knowing. With Carolina, there wasn't much to know. She needed money and drugs and nothing more. She seemed to survive without so many of the essential things other people need, like compassionate friends with sympathetic ears. Ray, I've met a nice man. His name's Bruno and he's from Macedonia. We have a lot in common and we're going to be living together as from next week. So I should say, don't call this number as from Friday because I won't be here, Ray. I'm glad you've met someone. Nice cars. He called her cars for short, usually when he was feeling brotherly or when the sex was over with. He'd been calling her cars a lot lately. It was a little painful to say it. His relief at cars having found a nice man was sincere, and her voice, which at first sounded edgy and tearful, was more confident and cheery. I want you to know that I've appreciated all the things you've done for me over the years, Ray. Such as supply you with drug money, you little hussy, Ray thought. It's been an experience, Ray said, something I'll always remember. Oh, Ray, you're such a kind man. I... Ray switched off the praise as the praise flew thick and fast. He didn't want to hear this, really. In the back of his mind, there was a hoping and a lusting and a hunger for a repeat performance of her phone conversation that a few weeks prior had him pleading in frenzied, lustful, oozing mercy as she purred and crooned into the speaker. Could he believe what he was hearing? Had this drug-taking sexpot little vixen finally found someone compatible, someone who would really look after her and get her away from the seedy, sordid nightlife she wallowed in? He wondered what Bruno looked like. Macedonian, that didn't help. Mediterranean, dark complexion, the standard black wavy hair and a hairy chest to match. Strange, imperfect words from thick, sexy, manly lips. Stop it, Ray, he thought. You're raving. You're a mind-surfing. You are mining for clues from your mind, and your mind is in the dirt. Now just wish cars well and hang up the phone. Good luck, cars. Thanks, Ray. There was a pause, and as Ray moved the receiver from his ear, he thought he heard her say, I'll be in touch. But when he pulled it closer to his ear, all that he could hear was the dial tone. He didn't need to hear her say anyway. He knew they would be seeing each other again. His heart was too kind to turn her away, and Cars knew it too. He lit a cigarette and flicked the ash into the waste paper bit, not caring whether it caught a light or burnt the house down. Tonight he felt an uncomfortable sadness creep over him, and for the first time in a long while, and he was not looking forward to dealing with it. <laughs>